So the title of the sermon this morning is uh, Love Believes All Things. Haven't been able to quite get my titles before we go to press, so apologize for that. We're continuing um, our reflection on the meaning of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And this morning, our verses are the same. Paul writes, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when per the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known. Even as I, I, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love, abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. God of love, we pray you spend, send your spirit this morning to illumine our hearts, illumine our minds, quicken our hearts in love. Um, teach us about ourselves and teach us about yourself. Help us to know that the God, as the God of Advent, um, you are the God who's always moving towards us with an open heart um, at all times. So may we turn to you and your open heart and embrace your love this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to break down the universe into its most basic and fundamental substance, what would it be? Um, now, if we're talking about the physical universe, then we need to talk about matter and energy. <clears throat> Protons, neutrons, leptons, quarks, these are the elementary particles of the universe which make up atoms, which are the basic unit of, of um, of substance that we measure. But if you were to ask a question of, and we're not talking about the physical universe, but what about, we are talking about the moral universe. What is the fundamental substance of the moral universe? What are its elementary particles, if you will? Now, according to Paul, according to Paul, it's love. Love makes up the elementary particles of the universe. Love is the primary substance of the universe. 
Love is the metaphysical substructure of all reality. Love is what makes the world go round. And the reason love is the fundamental substance of the universe is because the God who created the universe is love. Now, this is a very attractive vision of the universe, is it not? <laughs> if only it were true. If only it were true to our actual experience of the world, right? Well, unfortunately, that is often not our experience. For sure, we, we do experience love, right? But we experience love mixed together with lots of hurt, lots of harshness, of betrayal or disloyalty, um, injury and harm. Love almost seems like an exception to the way things are in the world, at least for many of us in the way we experience. In the words of the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, uh, life is short, nasty, and brutish. It is red in tooth and claw. It is a dog-eat-dog -dog world, survival of the fittest. That's often how we experience the world, and that's often, even though we maybe not articulate it fully, that's sometimes how we approach the world. Now, Paul himself is no starry-eyed romantic who is out of touch with reality as it really is. Paul knew suffering. He knew as full well as we do what the world is like and its harshness, and yet he persists in his belief that love is the fundamental substance of all things. Love bears all. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. These are really incredible statements. And I think the question is, how do we orient ourselves to a world of love when that is often not our experience of the world? How is it possible to believe all things and hope all things as love uh, calls us to do? Now, we live in an age of cynicism. To be cynical is to have an overall um, attitude or disposition of mistrust. We question people's motives and intentions. We think, generally, as a default, that people are guided by self-interest and um, things are to be viewed with suspicion until proven otherwise. That was actually Thomas Hobbes' philosophy, right? All people are guided by self-interest. Life is short, nasty, and brutish. And so we're prone to doubt sincerity and good intentions in others. Um, this is cynicism. And since ancient times and Greek philosophers, there's always been cynics. In fact, there was a whole school of cynics. There, you know, philosophically, there are cynics. And actually, Paul quotes one of them at the very end of 1 Corinthians. But there's never been... The, the cynics were always cultural outliers. You've always, you always have a cynic, right, within a, within a culture, but never have you had a whole culture that is cynical. But I believe that's our age. We live in a cynical age. We are an age that, and people that have lost faith and lost trust. We've lost trust in institutions. We've lost trust in leaders. We, we lose... We, have lost trust in other people. We've lost tr trust in the church. We've lost trust in general. We just don't have a lot of faith in humanity as a whole. 
Everything is viewed with suspicion through a cynical lens. See, in our cynical age, it's not love that is the fundamental substance of the universe, but it's power. In a cynical age, power is the elemental particles. To live in a cynical age is what I spoke about uh, a month ago about living in a post-truth age. In a post-truth age, everything is about power. There's no common good that transcends ourselves. We are atomized individuals that are grouped into different tribal identities without a common good, without transcendent truth to which we're all aiming. And when that happens, all that's left is power and the relations of power. Who has power and who is deprived of power? And how do I get more power? What matters is not what is true or good, but what matters is who has power and how are they using it to their advantage, which is to my disadvantage. This, again, is very much a zero-sum world, right? We talked about this. A zero-sum world is a world in which there's only winners and only losers. There's nothing in between. If you win, I lose, right? That's a cynical age. And this is why everything in our culture has become political. Things that are, we wouldn't necessarily think of as political even 10 years ago or five years ago are now political. There's no sense of a common good or a universal truth around which we can rally or even disagree and try to persuade one another in the truth or what is good. Because again, there is no truth. <laughs> and your good is not necessarily my good. And your good, in fact, um, might actually oppress me and my understanding of good. All that's left is for us to try to get power. And so what you see here is instead of interpreting all of our life against the backdrop of an invisible understanding of love or goodness or truth, we're always interpreting the invisible reality of power. We're always trying to discern power in all our relationships and all our institutions and decode it and unmask it. And so moral claims of truth or goodness or beauty are just assertions of power. They're just assertions of power that cloak um, and advantage those with privilege, often at the expense of others. And so in a cynical age, and you know, I'm speaking of in a kind of extreme way, but there's all kinds of different permutations of this that are perhaps not as extreme. But in a cynical age, the public philosophy of a cynical age is deconstruction. Right? You've heard this word by now. We deconstruct, deconstruct institutions. We deconstruct the family. We deconstruct gender. We deconstruct society. We deconstruct our faith, right? When we deconstruct everything, the purpose is to reveal the hidden and oppressive functions of power that kind of keep us in our place or that oppress us or abuse us. And the goal of deconstruction is basically to free ourselves from the power of others and the claims they have over us. I mean, this is... Deconstruction is not about the discovery of truth because there is no truth except my truth or your truth. The goal of deconstruction is simply to expose the operations of power in my everyday life so that I can be free, right? Again, this is very high level, but this is the water we swim in. This is the water we swim in every day this is the philosophy of a cynical age, and I think we're all tempted by it. We're all absorbing it as part of the atmosphere. But according to Paul, the, the substance of the universe isn't power, it's love. 
While the philosophy of the cynical age is deconstruction, the philosophy of love is edification, to build up. See, cynicism tears things down, but love builds things up. Now, the Corinthians were experts in deconstruction. Um, They had very specialized knowledge of the spiritual nature of the universe, and they're deconstructing things all over. And Paul actually calls them out on this in chapter 8 when they're talking about, we, we have special deconstructive knowledge of what is really going on when, when sacrifices to meet are happening. And Paul says, he opens that chapter saying this, he says, love puffs up, knowledge builds up. See, you can have special knowledge, and that's the thing about cynicism. We In a cynical age, we know, we have special knowledge, we really know what's going on. And there's a kind of, there's a pride and arrogance about, well, you, you, you might think that this is good and sincere, but I really know what's going on. Right, and Paul, he says, knowledge built, puffs up, but love builds up. The operations of love in the world um, is to build the world up in truth rather than to tear down. And to be sure, love has its own hermeneutics of suspicion, right? Has its own critic, critical apparatus or ways of critique, which identifies when love gets disordered and idolatrous. So it's not as if love is blind. <laughs> love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And love can only love according to the truth. But love builds up. Love is always ordered to that which is edifying and building up. And this all brings us back full circle to Paul's really remarkable claims about love. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures. I think we want to believe that this is true, and we want to be loved in this kind of way, but how do we overcome our cynicism? How do we overcome our cynicism? We overcome our cynicism by learning to believe all things. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. There's just one phrase, love believes all things. This is perhaps the most difficult of all these statements that Paul makes here. Because it seems um, out of touch, it seems childish and naive to believe all things. What does he mean by this? Love that believes all things is an orientation of, of inherent trust towards other people. Instead of viewing others with suspicion or mistrust, love believes in them. It believes in them. Love accepts people at face value. It doesn't assume the worst about them. In fact, it assumes the best about them. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't assume that their intentions are malicious or self-interested, even when it has good cause to think so, actually. And this applies not just to people who are in our, our lives, our relationships, that of people we know, but of people we don't know. And it actually even applies to those people who have hurt us and have disappointed us. Love doesn't stop trusting. The love doesn't stop believing. It doesn't let suspicion and mistrust fill and overtake the relationship, even relationships with difficulty. Love continues to exercise a kind of, of kind of faith towards another person. It, love doesn't say, I don't trust you anymore, or I've lost my faith in you. Because when you say that, basically what you're saying is, I no longer want a relationship with you anymore. No relationship 
no matter how intimate and close or casual, can thrive in an environment of mistrust and suspicion. All relationships require trust and goodwill. Trust needs to be the atmosphere of all of our relationships. So to navigate the world of relationships with mistrust is to, in a sense, have already rendered moral judgment about a person or a group of people before you've really understood who they are. Mistrust says that this is the kind of person you are. I know it. I just know it. This is who you are. Therefore, I will not trust you. Love, on the other hand, exercises a kind of suspension of judgment. It suspends judgment. Love refuses to quickly make up its mind about a person's character or their motivations before it has engaged a person directly and deeply and sympathetically. Love says, even when there's problems, even when there's perceived injury, love says, I know there's more to you. <laughs> I know there's more to you than I'm seeing. I know there's more to your humanity than perhaps what I'm experiencing right now. And even when love has real cause for concern, it wants to be proved wrong. Love wants to be proved wrong. I think of the words of Jesus from the cross as they're nailing him up there. Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Love wants to be proved wrong. It wants to believe the best about people. Mistrust, on the other hand, wants to believe the worst. It, want, it actually wants to believe the worst, and eventually it will find a way to prove itself right. That's how mistrust works. The exercise of mistrust most often is a self-fulfilling prophecy. When mistrust characterizes our relationships with others, it impacts the whole atmosphere of the relationship, right? Although mistrust might never have been explicitly stated directly, like, I don't trust you, um, most of us know it, right? We feel it. You feel it when somebody is wary of you or distrustful of you or guarded towards you. You feel it, right? And the exercise of mistrust in relationships, is, it's like putting a person on probation. That's what it's like to exercise mistrust and suspicion towards other people. It's like, you, it's like putting them on probation. The person who, um, in whom mistrust is placed knows that all their words and their actions are being very carefully monitored and scrutinized and recorded. And so they know they're not being given the benefit of the doubt, and so it completely changes the dynamics of the relationship. And because of this, they often, we respond to mistrust and suspicion of others by ourselves becoming somewhat guarded, right? And, and we, we pull back. And in some cases, we mistrust the mistruster, right? We feel like the burden of proof is on us to prove to the other person we're not who they suspect us to be. See, the problem with probation is, is that, you know, it might work in criminal situations, but, pro but, but probation ruins personal relationships. Love requires trust. Love requires trust. And love that trusts, rather than mistrust, is really difficult, though, because what does it require of us? It requires vulnerability. To trust another person, to have faith in them, in a sense, is, is to become vulnerable to them. But there's no, there's no such thing as love without vulnerability. It's only when you let your guard down 
when, when you let people know you, when you, you let others into your life, that you're able to really truly connect with them and, and get and experience the kind of intimacy that we all long for. Without vulnerability, there is no connection, right? But this is precisely what makes loving so risky, right? Mistrust is the opposite of this, right? Mistrust is a refusal to be vulnerable. It's a refusal to be vulnerable. It is, it is how we protect ourselves, right, from getting hurt. Um, it's how we stay in control of a situation or of a relationship. We mistrust. We're suspicious. And so we, we stay in control. But again, this doesn't work, right? <laughs> If you want to actually connect with people, if you want real intimacy and love and friendship, you can't do that. Now, if you're a person that's been deeply hurt or betrayed or wronged, or perhaps in your early childhood you were abandoned or abused or you have early childhood experiences, mistrust becomes a kind of an instinct. <laughs> Many people develop this over time, just mistrustful instinct, and for all kinds of different reasons for the sake of survival. But again, that doesn't take the problem away because what mistrust does is it closes us off from the thing that we most desperately crave and need in this world, which is connection and friendship and intimacy and belonging and for people to know us for who we are. But in trusting other people, we will become vulnerable and we will be hurt. We will become woundable. So what do you do? How do, you, how do you handle this? The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a whole book on 1 Corinthians 13 called Works of Love. And in that book, he devotes a whole chapter to this one phrase, love believes all things. And Kierkegaard sensed the deep moral dilemma that this statement that love believes all things poses, right? Because a love that believes all things is like the love of a child, right? It's a childlike love. You know, children are, are naturally trusting until <laughs> they're given reason to think otherwise, right? Or to behave otherwise. But they're naturally trusting. That's why Jesus said, Let, suffer the little children, come to me, right? You have to have faith like a child. You have to entrust yourself to me. And, and love is like that, right? Love is true love that trusts is almost childlike. It, it just trusts without asking questions. And of course, that, 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 that seems so naive though, right? That's so childlike and so, so really irresponsible to love like that. You're saying that I'm supposed to trust people knowing that they're going to hurt and deceive me? How is that anything but gullibility and ignorance? And so... Kierkegaard, he understands the problem, and he takes it up, and he actually argues to the contrary. He says, love believes all things, and yet is never deceived. Love believes all things, and yet it's never deceived. And he distinguishes between a love that believes out of th all things out of ignorance and naivete, um, like a child that's really never experienced any hardship, and a love that actually believes all things with all the full knowledge that mistrust has about the world. And he says, see, the love that believes all things knows everything that mistrust knows, and yet it still believes, and it's not deceived. See, according to Kierkegaard, the true lover, and I love he uses that word, the true lover, the true lover is never deceived, 
and offering her trust even when her trust is betrayed. And that's because the true lover understands the real meaning of love. And you can only be duped in giving love to others if you're expecting something reciprocal in return for your love. This is Kierkegaard's central point, and it's at the heart of what Paul means here. You can only be duped into giving love if you think love is something by which you should get an equal something in return. But that's not love. See, if love is to make the happiness and the flourishing of the other the object of my own happiness, that even I will not stop loving the other person even when they fail to love me back. Even when they take advantage or deceive me in my love. Because true love isn't transactional. True love isn't um, reciprocal. Uh, Kierkegaard goes on, and he always has these great little parables to illustrate his point. He says, when someone tries to deceive, um, when somebody tries to deceive the lover by taking advantage or deceiving them, it's like trying to steal something from them by slipping money in their pocket. That's the image that Kierkegaard has. It's like, when, the true, when, you, try to, when you try to deceive the true lover, it's like trying to steal from them, but in stealing from them, you're putting money in their pocket. You can't steal from the true lover. She always gets richer. Every person she gets an opportunity to love, each time she extends herself in faith and trust to others without claim for being paid back, she gets richer because she's not expecting anything in return. The very act of loving itself is the reward. The very act of loving, the opportunity to love itself is the reward. That's, that's the meaning of Christian love. <laughs> and it's only possible because God is love. And that we don't live in a zero-sum universe. And your love cannot be taken from you because in the act of loving, you get richer. Now the true lover believes all things and yet is never deceived. But that does not mean that the true lover is never hurt. She is. And I, I just want to take a moment here to, to offer some important clarifications. Love that believes all things is not an argument for staying in an abusive relationship. Remember what I said last week. Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. There's no such thing as loving that is not loving according to the truth. Abusive love is not love. So this is not an argument for staying in an abusive relationship. It's not an argument for failing to exercise discernment in our relationships <laughs> and setting boundaries. It's not an argument for being the world's doormat either. And yet, and yet the, there is a way that the Lord calls us to be childlike in our love. You think of the way that Jesus says in one of, the gospel, one of his parables about being as innocent as doves and as wise as, uh, as serpents. There's a way that love really does know what the world is like, and yet it still goes forward <laughs> in faith and trust. It refuses to let its heart be overcome with hatred or ill will or to become cynical, even when it's hurt and disappointed and even betrayed. Now, the life of Jesus offers a really striking example of this balance here. In the Gospel of John, there's a really striking and unusual observation made about Jesus. Um, this is in chapter 2. Um, it says that many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself was for he himself knew what was in everyone. <laughs> What's interesting here is it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to um, anyone. Now, this would seem to contradict everything I've just said. <laughs> right? Um, everything I've been arguing for. Wait, so if Jesus didn't entrust himself to men, so why should I? Right? But this is not what that observation is about. But it's actually an important one for this. See, Jesus exercises discernment in his relationships with others. And he has, unlike us, he has perfect knowledge and perfect insight into the hearts of all. And what's going on here is he knows that the people's attraction to him and belief in him at this point is really just a projection of their own understandings of a Messiah onto him. They're projecting onto him all their aspirations of the Messiah to come and what they they think he will do and be, but this actually doesn't correspond to who he really is, the kind of Messiah that he would become. And so his refusal to entrust himself in this moment has to do with not letting people define his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. See, love that trust is not the same thing as a disordered love that insists that a person conform to our own image and expectations of them. That's really important to understand. Disordered love wants to conform others to our own image of what we want out of them, whether that's a spouse or a child or any relationship. So in this sense, Jesus does not entrust himself to men, and neither should we, if that's the case. However, that is not the whole story, right? Jesus does entrust himself to men and women. And that is the overriding message of all the Gospels. The incarnation is Jesus entrusting himself to the world, to humanity. God Almighty becomes flesh. He becomes vulnerable in the womb of Mary. He becomes vulnerable as, a, as an infant boy in a far-flung village in a cradle or a manger. As a little boy whose life is under threat by King Herod, who sought to kill and ended up slaughtering a whole village. He becomes vulnerable. He and his parents, they flee to Egypt to keep him alive. And this continues, right? When Jesus calls his disciples, he knows who they are. He knows them better than they know themselves. Yet he makes them his closest friends and his closest confidants. He entrusts himself to them. And as the cross draws near, one by one, they fail him right? Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. The rest abandon him. He knew this. He even told them about it. He even predicted it. They wouldn't believe him, and yet he continued to entrust himself to them. The burning question, I think, for all of us is, how do we love like this? How do you love like this? A love that trusts, a love that believes all things, hopes all things, even when it puts you at risk and makes you vulnerable, to being hurt. And, and here on, uh, on this account, Jesus is, is a very poor example for us to imitate. <clears throat> Jesus is a poor example for us to imitate because you can't look at Jesus and see what he does and do likewise. It's like watching a ballerina. 
Some of you went to the Nutcracker. I don't know. It's like watching a ballerina jump in the air and hold this exquisite pose, like suspended in midair. And you see it, and you understand it, but you know there's no way you could ever do that, right? <laughs> That's sort of like the love of Jesus. You see it, you understand it, but you're like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make that movement in my own heart. And I think um, it's important to, to know that. Something I've said the past couple weeks is, is this. Um, you don't learn to love through imitation. I mean, there's a certain level of learning that you can do. But you, the, this, is the, this is so important. You don't learn to love through imitating Jesus or imitating others. You learn to love by being loved. You learn to love by being the recipient of love. And I want you to consider, in conclusion, how God loves you in Jesus Christ. When God looks on you, he does not look on you with mistrust or suspicion, although he has very good reason to. He sees all of you. He understands your heart perfectly. He knows that you will never, ever be able to reciprocate his love. He knows that you will betray him. He knows that you will not love him back in the same way that he loves you. And yet he loves you all the same. You see, when God's, God's love is not like human love. See, when we love... Our love almost always is a response to something in the other person that we find good and worthy and beautiful. We see something about them that's valuable and we are attracted to it and we love them. Our love is based on merit and worth. But the love of God, as Martin Luther has so eloquently put it, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God doesn't find but creates. It's not like when God looks at you, he's looking for something worthwhile in you and a reason for why he should love you. When God loves you, when he looks at you, it is that gaze itself that creates what is worthy. See, our dignity as persons is nothing less than the image of God in us. It's God himself in us. And so when God loves us, he's not responding to our worthiness. Rather, as he loves us, he creates what is worthwhile. Again, Luther says, God's love doesn't seek its own good. The love of God flows forth and bestows good. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. <laughs> Let me say that again. Sinners are attractive because they're loved. They're not loved because they're attractive. See, how does God love you back into how does God make you back into his image? How does he conform you to the image of Christ? It is not simply like, here's the law, now do it. I gave you an example in the person of Jesus, now do it. No, what he does is he loves you back into his own image. He believes in you. He has faith in you. But it's not really you because you're worthy of it. But his gaze itself creates which is lovely to it. This is what really the, the doctrine of justification is all about. We talk about we, we're justified by faith. What happens in justification? God see, 
all the sin, all the wrong, all the shame, God does not hold against us. He doesn't credit it to us. It doesn't hold him back from loving us. Not just that, but there's another thing. He takes all that is lovely about Jesus, all the ways that he loves perfectly, all of his righteous, and he credits to you. And so when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't just see you, he sees the face of Jesus. See, what makes us lovely is what made Jesus lovely. Now, friends, God loves you. God loves you. I don't say this enough because it just seems like a platitude, right? God loves you. We all say this. We all believe it. No, but he loves you. (laughs) He loves you. He really loves you. He believes in you. He sings over you. He will never give up on you. He will never cut you off. He'll never write you off. His love endures. And he will wait as long as it takes for you to receive his love. Brothers and sisters, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures. Amen. Lord, we have no words for your love. Even the most eloquent verse and poetry doesn't come close to capturing the, the great beauty and profound truth of your love for us in Jesus. May we rest in your love. May we experience ourselves being loved by you. And may this quicken us and enliven us to love one another. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.